Today we are looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, which is on page 1002 of the Bibles in front of you. So starting from verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. Vicky, thank you. Uh, Morning, everyone. If we've not met, my name is Matt Fuller. I'm the vicar. And um, my privilege is to uh, both bring you uh, a bit of Mark 1 this morning and think a little bit about uh, uh, the year ahead and to do so while standing in the sun. So you think you're warm. Um, You're better off than me, I reckon, as you stood in the sun. Um, Now, uh, over the years, we've done a few things in terms of thinking through uh, the plans for the year ahead. Uh, Sunday morning, we've had a service and then had lunch and then had another talk and we've done that here, we've done it in the park. But we're going to roll, try, uh, the second year we've done this, try and roll it all into one, which means um, uh, no further words over the picnic, just a bonus length sermon. That's the, that's the, uh, just putting that down as a marker, all right, just as we begin. Let's pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, here are very simple words of the Lord Jesus, but golly, how profound, how absolutely glorious, how life-changing. And so, Father, please would we hear them, not superficially, but deeply. Please, would your spirit be at work so we hear them with the eyes of our heart and we're transformed. Father, please be about that work, we pray. Amen. So you get Jesus preaching, and then uh, this double incident twice, Jesus says, follow me, to uh, Simon or Peter and his brother Andrew, and then James and John, follow me. And what, to our eyes, at first glance, perhaps looks a little bit crazy is, they do. And uh, Mark makes it very clear that they leave everything. So uh, uh, Andrew and Simon, verse 18, immediately at once leave their nets and followed him. And then James and Zebedee, much, uh, sorry, uh, uh, James and John, much the same. Verse 20, they leave their dad. Hopefully he's got the strength and perhaps notes are right. But they leave their dad in the boat and they leave the rest of their employees in the boat and they go. So Jesus says, follow me. Okay, we'll leave our family and we'll leave our business and we'll do so. And we read that and think, why? Well, we may know, we may have been Christians for a long time, isn't it? Sort of know this story very well, but 
Why? Would you do that? Someone walks by, follow me, okay? I mean, some small things. You're in Tesco's, can you tell me where the mayonnaise is? Yes, follow me. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. Not a great deal at stake there, perhaps. But significant things? I'm not sure anyone has said to me in a sort of dramatic way, follow me. I think one or two may have heard before, you know, years ago, years ago, we, had, we were going to miss a ferry. We'd driven all the way through France. We were getting a ferry from Caen to Portsmouth, and it was at 8 o'clock, and we were running late, and we were getting stressed, and one-year-old in the back, and nowhere to stay, and where we going to, no food, and we were very stressed, very stressed. Uh, why do we stay so long? It's your fault, it's your fault. Um, uh, I'd sort of pretend. Um, but a little, uh, obviously that obviously didn't go like that. Uh, but a little bit of stress, a bit of stress. And, ah, uh, oh, phew, we've arrived in Caen, where the ferries, I mean, they're big things to lose, right? Um, where's the ferry port? We're in the centre of Caen. And my wife, with her impeccable French, said, Où est le port? Où est Angleterre? And uh, this marvellous man in the, you know, who she did Suis-moi. Got in his car and drove, and 10 minutes down the road, okay, Wiestrom, that's where you meant to go from. Wiestrom is the port. Okay, follow me. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I can't think of anything else that was more significant in terms of a. But here, drop everything, leave your dad, leave your business, follow me. I think you have to recognize, even if this story is very familiar or you've never read it, there's something unusual here. There's something a little bit special about this demand, this summons to follow me. Well, we've begun looking at Mark's gospel, and uh, it's a pretty, well, it's it's a crucial passage in the gospel today, because in one sense, here's the key message. Lots of times, uh, uh, as you go through the book, uh, emphasis, Jesus preached, he preached, he preached. What's he preaching? He's preaching this. This is the message that he's preaching, the good news of God, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Here's the center, the guts of what Jesus goes around preaching and tells his disciples to preach. So uh, it's very simple. We look at the three pairs of words, good news, repent and believe, follow me. So simple, right? Good news, repent and believe, follow me. They're on the sheep, but it's very straightforward. Jesus preached good news. That's what we're told, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, about God, from God. Translate that how you choose. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come because I'm here. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Well, what is the good news? Well, many would know. You translate it differently. Gospel, it's the same word. Gospel, good news. You take your pick, literally. Uh, angel in Greek, euangelion. Angel, message, you, good. Good message, good news is literally what it means. But it's a bit more than perhaps the literal sense because good news can just be, oh, that's nice. Oh, look, I found five quid in my shorts. Oh, that's good news. Uh, but hardly of significance. You know, the last story on the news at 10 or, or, you know, it's depressing, depressing, depressing. But finally, here's some good news. A man taught his squirrel to abseil down the building using dental floss or whatever it is. It's something, you know, (laughs) well, that's nice. Um, Isn't that nice? That's nice. But this sense is dramatic. 
So Jesus and Mark, they're probably borrowing a word or fully aware of the use of a word. The first recorded example we have is 10 BC, so maybe 40 years earlier uh, in a uh, famous document. The birth of Caesar Augustus was the beginning of the gospel of the world, says Caesar Augustus. Okay, My birth was the most dramatic event in the history of the world. And then it goes on to list all of um, Augustus's uh, achievements as uh, the first Caesar. Okay. Dramatic, uh, epoch-defining, turning point in world history, gospel. Dramatic, momentous news. And it is. So there's that background, but it's also a very rich Old Testament background, just... Yeah, I'm not going to go through them all in any sense, but the gospel or good news in Isaiah, you can look up some of those references, you'll, you'll know them, they're prominent ones. The good news that Isaiah promised God would come and conquer his enemies and save his people. In fact, salvation would come through conquest, says Isaiah. This is the good news that must be proclaimed on all the mountaintops. Good news will come. And if I may, many would have heard the, the, the old illustration that preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones used. I'm not sure I've heard a better sort of little illustration of this. But good news is it's something done for you. Caesar Augustus has entered this world and transformed everything about it. It's happened. You don't do anything. It's not good advice. So Lloyd-Jones gave this uh, very uh, straightforward illustration. So your king, the, the kingdom is invaded in, in a medieval time, and your king goes off to war to fight. And um, a herald comes back and says, ah, oh, the king has lost. I have good advice. Sharpen your swords. Prepare your arrows. Get the oil burning. Here's good advice because the enemy is about to come. You have to fight. That's my advice to you. Very different is good news. The king has gone off to fight the enemy, the invaders, and he's won. What do we do with that? Well, you just say, great. You celebrate. That's the nature of gospel or momentous announcement biblically. Jesus has declared, I'm here. And the good news is, I am God's king. And he'll go on to go in the details in the rest of the gospel. I will conquer sin. I will conquer death. I will bring justice to this world. What do we do, Jesus? Trust me. Is that it? Yes. And your trust will be seen in the fact that you follow, but trust me. But you see, these messages, gospel is God has done. It isn't you must do. Now, we get a bit confused about that still, I think, because the word gospel gets used quite often. Lots of, uh, in the 21st century, it, we're still, uh, our Christian heritage gets used in lots of ways. There are lots of gospel messages, you might call them that, in the world today. Maybe the, the, the gospel of extinction rebellion. Here's what will save the world if we, whatever it may be, uh, tie, uh, stick ourselves to the concrete and close the M25, or whatever it may be. Um, here, this will save the world. And it's a message, we must do something to save the world. I think probably the most widespread gospel in our generation is that of self-fulfillment. You must be true to yourself. You must have autonomy over your life and be the authentic self you are meant to be. 
I think that's probably the most common one. So, um, someone I was reading over the summer, uh, one writer put it in this way, we may have it, um, New York Times. So, uh, let me just read. The idea of self-care is now often used to frame individual pleasurable actions like taking a bubble bath or cancelling plans as morally worthy, even necessary. According to this newly prevalent gospel of self-actualization, the pursuit of private happiness has increasingly become culturally celebrated as the ultimate goal. Do you see, I, I don't, I've read a few of her things. I don't think she, Tara Isabella Burton is a Christian. I think she's a very shrewd sociologist. But the gospel of self-actualization, here is the 21st century message. Here is what will save you. Here is what will bring you deliverance from boredom. Or here's what you're meant to be. You. Search for the hero inside yourself, whatever it may be. Let me briefly just compare a couple of these things. We may have a... Oh, well, here's another example. This is just in the paper last week, just in the, um, in the Telegraph, making very much the same point. Britons have given up on the church. We'd rather worship ourselves. With congregations diminishing, it seems we're happier at the altar of wellness while our collective spiritually goes down the drain. This is, this is hardly profound observation, right? Everyone would acknowledge this. In the 21st century, what do we worship? Us. We're creatures made to worship. You reject God. What do you worship? Me. And in the 21st century, we're told, that is really good. The worship of you is the route to happiness. Apart from anyone sensible knows, it's not true. <laughs> so let me just compare. Maybe we've got a little table uh, to compare. Okay, I'm just going to compare self-fulfillment as a gospel with Jesus. Okay, so what's the message? The message of self-fulfillment, you must be true to yourself. You must do what you think is right and stuff everyone else. Okay. That's authentic. Jesus, I've done everything you need. I'm God's king. I've conquered sin. I've conquered death. I'll bring justice. Just trust me. Okay, two very different. Now, let's just, three sort of buzzwords, I guess. What about inclusive community, which is um, what we're aiming for, of course, in the 21st century? How are we doing at becoming an inclusive society when we pursue a message of self-fulfillment? What do you reckon? Because when people talk of culture wars, that's not a construct, that's a thing. Entrenched positions, and people don't talk to one another at all. It's hard to see how you create a united vision for humanity around the idea that everyone must be deeply autonomous and do what they want. It's very hard, isn't it? Everyone must do whatever they want as a significant autonomous being, and that will bring everyone together. Huh? How can it do that? It doesn't do that. You know, for the last five years, you probably couldn't name them, but uh, the, the, the UK was the first country five years ago to appoint a minister of loneliness. He's not in the cabinet, but in the wider government, a minister of loneliness, because it's such a big deal in the 21st century. Are we becoming a more inclusive community? No. I mean, again, one knows it's not right. By contrast, what's this, what does Jesus do? He says, oh, let's have a church. Let's have a, a body of believers who follow me who say, look, I screw up and you screw up, and we need to forgive one another. But if we do that, 
we can hold different political opinions, different social opinions. We can support different sports teams. It doesn't really doesn't matter because we all follow Jesus and he draws us together as we forgive one another. It does build a community. Uh, more quickly, what about fulfillment? How are we doing? What about self-fulfillment? Is it leaving people fulfilled? Well, you read these stats as well as I do. In the last five years, mental health difficulties in children have risen by 49%. A quarter of 17 to 19-year-olds in the UK suffer from a mental health disorder. The um, number of under-25s who um, are diagnosed with general anxiety disorder has gone up by 25% in the last five years. Are we more fulfilled as we pursue self-fulfillment? No. No, we're not. We're lonelier as a culture, and we're more anxious as a culture, and mental health suffers as a culture. Whereas Jesus would say, follow me. Follow me, and you have a purpose that lasts into eternity. That matters. That, that is fulfillment. Because all of us need something bigger than the suffocating me. You and I are not big enough to sustain all our hopes and dreams. We're just not. It's suffocating. Progressive? What about a pro- we're a progressive culture, aren't we? But of course, let me hear me. There's all sorts of progress made in our world, in science and medicine, etc. But in terms of self-fulfillment, but by contrast, Jesus would say. You see progress in the growth of my kingdom. You see progress in your character. You see progress in your community. Now, I labor that a little bit. But Jesus is going to say, follow me. And we swim in in an ocean which says, follow yourself, follow yourself. So at first, these are two massively clashing ideologies, okay? The gospel of self-fulfillment and the gospel of Jesus. And we just have to be really clear One, empirically, according to sociologists who aren't even Christians, is effective at building community and making people more content. And one is deeply flawed and failing. You've just got to know that. So there are plenty of gospel messages in history, the message you can save yourself. The gospel of Jesus says, I have conquered death and your sin. You just need to trust me. You need to repent and believe. Okay, so Jesus preached good news. Uh, what are we meant to do? So that we repent and believe. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Two sides of the same coin. If you believe that Jesus is the one who's done everything for you and Lord of your life, you say, well, I don't trust myself. I trust him. It's just two sides, repent and believe, of the same coin. I repent of the gospel of selfism. And I believe that Jesus is in the center. Let me give you just three, perhaps clarifying little statements on this. Um, Repentance and belief. Belief is not just mental. Actually, it transforms you. We'll see next time. Jesus encounters an impure spirit who says, oh, I know who you are. You're... um, You've come from God, aren't you? The Holy One from God. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the impure spirit could mentally be fully aware of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Oh, you've come to destroy me, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Interesting. doesn't say interesting. Um, he know, doesn't do anything for him. 
doesn't benefit him, that knowledge. You can recognize who Jesus is. You can be aware that it has implications for you. But that knowledge is useful. But you need more than that. You need faith. I personally trust in that. See, the, um, uh, I believe that the, uh, here's the sun and, and um, the earth revolves around the sun. I'm sure you believe that too. But if I was foolish enough to think it was the other way around, that here's the earth and the sun revolves around the earth, um, I'd be wrong. But it wouldn't really make much difference to day-to-day life. I'd just be wrong. It wouldn't really matter. Now, it does transform things with Jesus. If I think, here's Jesus, and I revolve around him, life will look very different to, here's me at the center of everything, and Jesus is just one planet that orbits around me at the center. That will make a difference to how you live. Because if Jesus is the center and you orbit around him, you're not the center. (laughs) His word comes first. Your ambitions are second to his. Your possessions, second to his. Your relations, second to his. Because he's at the center. Repentance and belief, it's not mental assent. It's not less than that. But it's absolutely transforming. A uh, second little thing of clarification. Uh, repentance, it comes with faith. Both, as I say, there's two sides of the same coin. If you trust the promises of God, you'll obey his commands. It's so simple, the Christian life. It really is. If you trust what he says, you'll obey his commands. If you have belief in Jesus, you'll reject anything that contradicts his commands. So simple, the Christian life. But if you doubt his promises, you won't follow him. You won't repent. But if you trust his promises, you will. You you can't pull the two apart. Repentance is like the tear in the eye of faith. I trust you, Jesus, and now I regret those things that I've done. And I'm going to change. It's not just mental assent. It comes together, repentance and faith. And, of course, it's not simply how you start. It's how you live in an ongoing sense. My third little thing. So Martin Luther, notably, the first of his 95 theses when he kicked off the, Revol- uh, the Reformation. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. So you start the Christian life by saying, I trust you, Lord. I see that Jesus is in charge and I repent of going my own way. And every day of the Christian life is, I trust you and I repent of going my own way. Every day, ongoing. Today, you and I will have cause to repent of selfishness, irritability, anger, whatever it may be, and faith every day. This simple truth, the kingdom has come in Jesus. The good news is he is God's king. He's conquered sin and death, will return to judge. 
that simple truth, it, it permeates as more and more and more and more of our life trusts him and turns away from self. So Jesus preached good news so that we repent and believe and follow him. Follow him. As these four fishermen do. Now, <clears throat> I've read this many a time. I'm sure you've read this many a time. It, uh, and we're so familiar with it. It struck me, the, um, only struck me this week. This is perhaps surprising. So Jesus arrives and says, okay, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, John has announced me, and now here I am. And here's what you need to know. Uh, I bring you this extraordinary news of who I am, and you must repent and believe. And this is going to change the world. I'm about to change the world forever. And what does he do? I'm going to recruit my key team and goes and gets four fishermen. So what he doesn't do, I'm about to change the world. So Jesus goes off to Jerusalem and tells the religious leaders, follow me. He doesn't go to Rome and says, Caesar, you must follow me. He doesn't go to the, legionaries, um, the, the commanders of the legions and says, follow me. He doesn't do any of that. He goes to, I don't know, fishermen in Newquay or, I don't know, people on the construction line, a VW planting crew, and unremarkable. Never would have heard of them. No one had heard of James and John and Peter and, and Andrew. They'd not heard of them in Jerusalem or Rome. Caesar wasn't worried about these guys. This is hardly Avengers Assemble. This is hardly we've got some big stuff to do. I'm going to get Gandalf and Legolas and Aragorn and we're going to kick some orcs. This is, I'm going for some ordinary people who have faith in me. And that'll change the world. And we see it in Mark's gospel and afterwards, of course. Just a reminder, a little reminder. Jesus will build his kingdom through ordinary people like you and me obeying him. He doesn't need celebrities. He doesn't need brilliant people. Just ordinary people who'll follow him. But uh, two other things, really, I guess, to mention. Uh, the task and the cost. The task, what's he saying? Come follow me, says Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. Oh, I see what you've done there. We're fishermen, we're going to fish for people. I mean, yeah, it works, doesn't it? I mean, I guess he could have gone to a bunch of accountants and says, come and add people to your spreadsheet. I guess that would have sort of um, less memorable, perhaps less vivid. But the task is to be fishers of men. And not in the same sense as the apostles, but I guess it's a task that spreads throughout the church. Of course, there's a difference, isn't there? It, fishermen take living fish and bring them onto a boat where they die. The, the task here is to take people who are spiritually dead and bring them into Jesus' kingdom so they live. It's very different. The, the picture is that you, you and I are all, you know, naturally the whole of humanity is swimming in an ocean and it's oh, it's not nice. There's been an oil tanker spill and oil is gushing out and the oil in the sea is going to kill us all. We're all slowly dying, slowly dying. And we don't realize it. These fishermen pull people out of the poison waters into the fresh water that Jesus provides. That's the picture, pulling people from death into life. That's these fishermen. And you and I have that task in a derived sense. That's the task. The cost... The cost is that they leave everything behind. They leave their nets, they leave their dad, 
They leave their hired men, so probably quite a successful business. They've got employees. Now, get later on in the Gospels that they haven't thrown it all away. They can still fish. We'll see next time. Peter's got a nice big house. He's done pretty well. He's still living at it. But priorities are established here. There's a cost when Jesus says, follow me. And you, you can't say it's in the small print and Jesus hides it. He's very obvious about the cost of following him. Three other times in Mark's gospel, we get the call to follow me. We may have them. In uh, Mark 2, he saw, he saw Levi sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Rose and followed him. Mark 8, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Mark 10, Jesus looking at the rich man said to him, he loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor, you have treasure in heaven and follow me. You can't become a follower of Jesus and then say, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, like cost, no one told me that. Jesus told you that. There's a cost. But why do these first disciples pay it? And of course, let me remind you, if you're a Christian here this morning, why do we pay the cost of following Jesus when we're clear thinking, when we're in our right minds, when we're not being daft? Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. And he went to the cross before he went to glory. And he went to loss before he went to gain. We'll sing, he, he left his father's throne above. Follow me. We go down before we go up in following Jesus. Why, when we're thinking clearly, do we follow him? Because we've believed the gospel. We know that Jesus is the king who's conquered sin, conquered death, and will return to bring justice to this world. We know that's true. We know that we can live in his paradise with him forever. And even here and now, there is community and fulfillment and progress. We know those things when we're thinking clearly. And we know that other messages may subtly or explicitly shout at us that they will bring us what we desire, but they won't. And we know that. We know that in following him. No other message can deliver like this message because no other person can deliver like this, Jesus. Yes, he says, follow me. Oh, I'm not sure. But let me tell you the good news. I've conquered sin, I've conquered death. I bring justice to this world. I am God. I'm God's king. Now follow me. Okay. You know what you're doing. You've done it for me. I'll follow. Now let me briefly apply that to uh, the coming year. Just the coming year ahead for a few more minutes. Uh, if you've been around a while, last year, last year, this about this time, we said there were three particular challenges for uh, uh, the year 22 to 23. Uh, in the autumn, we wanted to appoint a, a new director of uh, operations, and we didn't. But we have now. So um, God's timing is perfect. So uh, Roxana's joined the staff team over, over the summer, so that's great. Uh, and that's a significant step because 
Uh, as some will know, we've got lots of staff turnover at the moment, um, and we're slightly rebuilding the machine. Dave Wakefield will sadly go to uh, Kenya. Well, that's great. Uh, in January, which is why we need a, a head of operations as his replacement. Okay. So that, what, that was one thing last year. We did that. Um, we said in the spring we'd know what the future is on the Church of England. Well, it's the Church of England, so nothing ever runs quite as you expect. And um, that's probably more likely in November. But what's going to happen to the Church of England? Can it hold together? Is it going to f- split apart? Is it going to abandon the Word of God completely? Well, November will be an indicator. That's still a big issue. Autumn, spring. And then we said in the summer we were hoping to plant a new church in northwest London, which we revealed to be Wembley when we had um, permissions to do so. And, um, of course, next Sunday in the evening we're going to commission the gang who are planting into Wembley Park. So, one and a half ticks. All right, that's not bad. Uh, the Church of England is really beyond ticking, I think. Um, but those are the three challenges, I, I think, of, of last year we spoke about most explicitly. What about this year? As ever at CCM, we want to be growing disciples. That's what we want to be. We want to be all making progress going forward. It's what we want to do. What would be about the task of seeing people become disciples and deepen their discipleship? And this year, I wonder if we might think about following him. And if I could have one little phrase that I'd love this congregation to, um, to keep playing around with all year long is, let's have a plus one. Okay? You could ask, you could ask one another, what's your plus one? Who's your plus one? <laughs> yeah, that, it's sort of, uh, you know, a little bit plus one. What, I, what, what is the one thing this term that I would do differently to follow Jesus? Look, we, we're varied in this room. Some have plenty of time and capacity. Others just feel like just about holding on, just about holding on, just about getting the kids up and dressed. And, you know, there, there's, I'm not saying let's multiply everything. Just plus one. What could that be? Plus one. So let me talk about three different areas where that's going to affect us, I think. Uh, The first, to plant and rebuild. So we say next weekend, farewell to the gang going to Wembley Park as they launch a service the week later on the 24th of September. Now every church plant that we've sent is a mixture of the three things, of core people who completely leave and go, of SWAT servants, willing and temporary, people who are still here but go and assist, and boss, which I'm still saying is bums on seats sometimes. You just go and cheer them on. Okay, you just go, you know, wanted to see how it's going, be part of a gang for this week. You're going great, okay? Every church plant needs those. Now, for most, because most of the gang are going from the evening, okay? For this morning congregation, the plant will go after next week, and it won't look very different here, but church will be creaking. Okay. So what can you do? It's unrealistic for most here to actually physically go and help out in Wembley. But there are a lot of holes going to appear here. And we can help with those. One thing that really needs doing on a Sunday morning, we need a Sunday crew just once a month just to help with practical setup and set down of church. It's not a big deal. The uh, AV team is going to be... Uh, decimated. The person crying most over the church plant, I think, is Jacob Holmes, because he's losing, losing half his team. Um, they'll have the best tech of any small church ever. Um, that and musicians. got a lot of great musicians going. Uh, so lots of holes. Generally, 
uh, the received wisdom, and I, I think I see this here. When you plant a church, it could take something like a year to recover the numbers. Something like two years to recover all the ministries being covered as they were. And something like three years to recover all the money that, uh, that goes with the gang. Okay. So three years to fully recover. But if we commit to it, we can go faster than that. Right? We really can. Not do everything. But uh, you can ask one another, this term, you can ask in your small groups, discipleship groups, what is the plus one? Look, oh, don't ask me to do anything more. Okay, I'm asking you to pray every day for the plant. You could do that. You could do it in the shower while you're spreading marmite on your toast, if that's your strange predilection. Um, you can do that. Okay, one thing. Because we want to be growing as disciples. Not the same. 12 months' time, we want to have grown a little bit. So that's one area. We need to plant and rebuild. As I say, the staff team doing that as well. Four new staff in the last month, two more by January. I'm just going to pray that the staff settle into their new roles uh, and that works well. Plant and rebuild. Another area, well, the passage throws up in one sense, to be fishers of men and women. What one step could we take forward this term or next term? Not everything, not transform everything. Because sometimes it's a bit bewildering. Oh, we've got to change everything. Well, I can't change everything. What about one thing? I'm going to pray for this one person Every day. Now, practical things. Um, you've got these cards with uh, some of the dates for the year uh, in front of you. But um, uh, they're not all the dates, but some useful dates. One thing we have discovered or realized over the last couple of years, uh, at, at church, lots of events at church, which are really good for bringing friends to who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians, be it a, a wine tasting or a meal or honest questions, all sorts of good things. But actually, the thing that the church family bring most of their friends to is church. Go figure. Um, so we'll have more visitors who wouldn't call themselves Christians on a Sunday throughout the year than, than other events. And so we're just recognizing that. And one of the motives, there are multiple, well, one motive is certainly spending this term in Mark's gospel. I think it's simple enough for anyone, and yet it's profound enough to stretch all of us. Certainly I'm feeling that. And so everyone gets high exposure to Jesus. But okay. one thing, could be just to pray for us. Uh, plant and rebuild. Fishes of men and women, a third little area. How about just encourage someone? How about that? <laughs> I mean, right, I'm offering you a suite. I'm offering you a smorgasbord. Um, one thing. This term, there is one family that I think is struggling that we're going to really be deliberate, intentional about trying to encourage. There's one individual that we're going to include in our family. Commit. Do practical things. Pray for them every day. Okay. So if we want to be growing disciples who follow Jesus in repentance and faith, one thing, one thing this term, maybe one thing the next term, Maybe one thing the summer term. But Matt, that's three, t- that's three things. I know. But just, what's it going to be? For some of us, we can take up a whole new ministry, something significant. For others, uh, we're just going to commit to do this more regularly. 
But if we're following him, it's not just mental assent. It's repentance and faith of our conduct every day. It's leaving behind certain ambitions, possessions, relations, and doing so because knowing that Jesus truly has a gospel, truly has good news, and that following him is the best thing we can do with our lives now and into eternity. He says, follow me. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, here is a very simple message at the heart of the Christian faith. That we must trust Jesus. Trust that he has died for our sins. He's conquered death. He'll return to judge. Trust him as the one who is your king over the whole of this world. Trust him. Knowing that he's done everything for us, our response is thanksgiving. It's trust. It's faith. It's belief. And Father, along with that, turning away from having ourselves at the center, this empty, vacuous, glittering, but ultimately deeply unsatisfying gospel of self-fulfillment or selfism. Father, it's what so many in our world think is the right way forward. It's what the analysts of this world will tell us is making us all a little bit unhappier. Father, would we turn to Christ who saves us now, saves us for eternity, and following him, see his kingdom grow. Father, help us be about this task of seeing disciples grow. We pray in his name. Amen.